It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to another episode of Thursdays with Trey. We are so grateful for you and your questions. We look forward to it and you keep us thinking throughout the week. As you may have noticed, Trey isn't with us this week. And don't worry, Trey will be back with more of your questions. Have a great week. All right, we'll start with our first question. It's from Karis in South Carolina. She writes, my question is, why are we still buying Putin's gas? What a beautiful name. First of all, Karis mm-hmm. um, from the great state of South Carolina. Well, Karis, I'm happy to tell you that as of Monday, March the 7th, I think the United States has decided not to buy oil and gas from Russia and, you know, in an unceasing effort to be fair. I don't know that we were buying that much anyway, but which begs the question, why, ben, why buy any at all? you know, since they invaded Ukraine, but I'm almost uh, certain that's the same Russia that uh, at least tried to interfere with the 2016 election and has either been complicit or looked the other way while there were cyber attacks against our country. So I'm sure it's above my head, Karis, like most things in life are, but unless the U.S. wants to be energy independent, which I think we were trending in that, direction or or uh, reliant upon a different energy sources not named oil and gas uh, the u.s is going to have to get it from somewhere and if it's not russia if we're not going to do it here and we'll get to that in a second but if we're not going to do it here does that mean venezuela i mean that that's not a real friendly country to the united states saudi arabia that's not like they don't get like all A's when it comes to human rights. Iran, I mean, I, I don't know. Unless and until the U.S. is energy independent fully or only dependent upon our allies or there is some alternative to oil and gas with which to power our lives and our economy, then I guess they're going to have to go where the oil and gas is. And... You know, you asked me to pick between Russia, Venezuela, Iran and Saudi Arabia. That's a that's a tough that's a tough choice. Our next question is from Matt. He writes, why is it okay for Russia to invade? But if NATO helps defend them, it's an act of war. I don't get it. Yeah, Matt, I don't either. Um, Sometimes these phrases are thrown around like act of war, war crime and you know, it, it, the definition is just in the eyes of the speaker. I mean, I mean, who? I mean, who says what an act of war is? I mean, Putin said sanctions against Russia were an act of war. Okay, well then, according to him, the U.S. and most other countries in the world have committed an act of war. Some people consider cyber attacks to be an act of war. If that's true then Russia committed an act of war against us or certainly turned 
turn their eyes while some you know, quasi peripheral government actors launched a cyber attack against the U.S. I would think trying to mess with our elections. I mean, it's fine for Americans to fight over who our president's going to be. Most of us don't want anybody outside this country participating in that fight. Some people would consider that to be an act of war. So those phrases don't make a lot of sense to me unless there's some common understanding of what the phrase means. And then there has to be a common appreciation for the consequences if you have triggered the definition of whatever an act of war or war crime is. And, you know, Matt, I mean, this is on the minds of lots of people. I actually had a fellow at the grocery store Saturday. He stopped me and was asking me about war crimes because he's heard that phrase a lot. And he says, well, if Putin has committed war crimes and surely invading a sovereign country, killing civilians, targeting civilians, surely that's a war crime. Sure. But who's the world's sheriff? I mean, who's going to go make the arrest? Who's the world's grand jury that's going to issue an indictment? Who's the world's prosecutor that's going to go, you know, after there's been an arrest and an indictment, prosecute Vladimir Putin for war crimes. Who's the jury? When I mean, we just got through with a question about an impartial jury, who's the jury? So these phrases are used a lot, but we should kind of separate, I think, the way we use these words in our common vernacular with words that have legal consequence it is nonsensical to say that it is okay for Russia to invade, but not okay for us to repel an invasion. That makes absolutely zero sense to me. And if it makes sense to someone else, they're welcome to explain it to me. Um, I just, we use the words war crime, act of war. An act of war, I guess, can be whatever a country decides it wants it to be. Mm-hmm. And war crime, while it sounds terrible, and we all think back to the Nuremberg trials, which are fascinating. If you have not read about the Nuremberg trials, I would encourage you to do so. Mm-hmm. You got to get a jury and a prosecutor, and you got to be able to meet. You know, at the end of a trial, there's a verdict. Let's assume the verdict's guilty and there's a punishment. You got to be able to go effectuate the punishment. How are you going to do that if you can't get your hands on the defendant? We'll be right back after this. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Our next question is from Jill in Georgia. She writes, can you explain the Roe versus Wade situation from a legal perspective? I guess there aren't any easy questions this week. Nobody <laughs> right. wants to know what my take on the golf tournament was. Or wow. <laughs> We have some thoughtful questions. Uh, can you explain Roe versus Wade from a legal perspective? Yep, because that's the only perspective that I can explain it from. That's... Mm-hmm. That's the one that I am most comfortable talking about. Okay, so Roe was a decision from 72 or 73. I mean, way before your time, Mary Linkson, and I was just a kid then too. But mm-hmm. it um, 
Well, we'll get to that in a second. Roe took its holding, which is a legal term. That's kind of the, the gist of a decision. We call that a holding. Roe took the holding from another case, which was Griswold versus Connecticut. And Griswold versus Connecticut, the state of Connecticut passed a law banning contraception. Why? I do not know. Why they thought that was a good idea, I do not know. I think there were only two states left in the United States that had laws against contraception. And ironically enough, one was Connecticut and one was Massachusetts. So it wasn't like they were really, really red states. But they passed a law banning contraception. And someone named Griswold, which may have been like a family planning clinic, something like that. I don't know. I got to, I'm just going all the way back to law school now for the facts. But the gist of it is the court in Griswold identified a right to privacy. And then the Roe court expanded that right to privacy to include a right to abortion and then constructed a trimester system where depending on which trimester you were in dictated what involvement government can't assert over your decision-making. So the way I think about it, and it's the easiest way for me to think about it, I want you to imagine two train tracks or two roads. Mm -hmm. And to me, they're not parallel. They're actually perpendicular. One train track, is the right to life. And that train track would be, or that road would be what the child is traveling. And the word life is mentioned in the constitution. It's also mentioned in the declaration of independence. So that's a right that I think is, is documented in our two foundational documents. So imagine that train track or that road, the right to life. And then the other train track or the other road is the right to bodily autonomy, uh, the right to privacy, the right to control your own healthcare decisions, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. That right is not mentioned specifically in the Constitution, but Justice Blackman writing for six other members of the court, I think the road decision was seven to two. So Blackman writing for six other members of the court found that in the penumbra or the shadows of the right to privacy lies the right to an abortion. So you will not see the word abortion in the Constitution for sure, but you also will not see the, the word privacy. Mm. On the other hand, Mary Langston, you also won't see the word marriage. I mean, I think people think they have the right to get married, but, but that word is not in the Constitution. Neither is the word education. Neither is the word self-defense. I mean, people read the Second Amendment to provide a right to self-defense. Well, the, the hyphenated word self-defense is nowhere to be found in the Constitution. So if you're looking at Roe from a legal perspective, Roe says that you have the right to bodily autonomy or privacy or whatever you want to call it, and that's held by the mother, and that while those rights do intersect at a certain point, Roach set up the trimester system. And this is an oversimplification, 
But for the most part, according to Roe, the right of the mother wins in the first trimester. The right of the child wins in the third trimester. And it's kind of uh, a sliding scale in the second trimester. And it all kind of hinged on viability. When, you know, I mean, I use the word child, other people prefer to use other words, but viability, the ability to, to live without the dependency or help of, of the mother. That was the legal construct from, for Roe. Now, I will say this, there are plenty of people who actually do believe that the Constitution gives you a right to privacy and maybe even a right to an abortion, and they still concede Roe versus Wade was a very poorly constructed opinion. I mean, you, you honestly don't hear that many people. They may like the result of Roe versus Wade, but you don't hear that many people talking about what a well-reasoned opinion it was. The bigger issue uh, for me is the uh, elucidation of rights. So Blackman had to use this word that nobody's ever heard of before in their lives, penumbra. Mm. I mean, it, it's not even a shadow. It's a shadow of a shadow. But we'll just use the word shadow because nobody knows what the word penumbra means, including me. <laughs> so are your, do you have rights living in the shadows of other rights? So take a right that you do have. You have the right to the free exercise of religion. Are there other rights that live in the shadow of that right? Mm -hmm. And even if you think that there might be, who gets to pull those rights out of the shadows into the glaring hot sun? Some people think that ought to be judges. I'm not in that group. Um, without, you know, like taking the rest of your life to answer this question, Mary Linkson, there's, <laughs> there's another amendment, the Ninth Amendment. That, that more than suggests those rights not enumerated in the Constitution, that doesn't mean they don't exist. It means that they're up to the people to decide them. Mm. So Roe versus Wade nationalized that policy. If Roe versus Wade is undone, overruled, then it reverts to the 50 states, which I know a lot of people that are part of the pro-life movement view that as uh, not only a win, but kind of the end of the debate, um, I do not, um, because it still boils down to the definition of life, and life is mentioned in the Constitution. Privacy is not, marriage is not, abortion is not, but life is. And I don't think you can have 50 different definitions on when life begins. I don't think if you live on this side of the border with North Carolina, Life begins at X point, but if you, you know, happen to walk across the street into North Carolina, life begins some other point. I, I just, I'm all for the states making decisions, but not decisions on when life begins. So Roe, um, even people who like the result should acknowledge it was not very well decided. And here we are back again. Um, and what, 50 years later, mm. yeah, 50 years later, still hasn't been resolved, but that's the legal analysis is simply put, are there rights that you have that are fundamental, even though they're not mentioned in the constitution, 
that live in the shadows or penumbras of other rights. And if there are, and most people would say, I mean, most people think they have the right to get married. I mean, I don't know. You're a smart person and you're not all that. I mean, it wasn't that long ago you got married. Do you think you have the right to get married? Well, I guess it depends on what you're looking at. I guess the document. Well, I, I think most people would say it is none of the state's business mm-hmm. whether or not I marry another person. I, I, I think a lot of people would say that none of the state of South Carolina's business, whether you and John decide to get married. Mm-hmm. But we do have restrictions on marriage. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't marry more than one person. You can't marry like a close family member. You know, there's a state called there's a decision called Loving versus Virginia. The state of Virginia did not allow uh, blacks and whites to marry. And, mm-hmm. you know, I had Mike Lee on the show the other night and he's right. That's an equal protection argument. And, and that's why that was decided. You can't discriminate. But you also have to identify whether or not the right to marry is a fundamental right. Most people would say it is. I, I'm not sure everyone would probably say it is. But it's not mentioned in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So um, that is like a trip to con law class, your first semester <laughs> of law school, which is why most people are probably sitting there thinking, gosh, I'm glad I didn't go to law school. But that's my <laughs> legal legal assessment of Roe versus Wade. That's not a moral assessment. It's not a philosophical assessment. It's not a religious assessment. That's my legal assessment. We'll answer more of your questions when we come back. Our next question is from Carl in Arkansas. And he actually writes, he's talking about the shooting that happened last week at the grocery store. And he says, I listened to last week's podcast about the mass shooting and can't agree more about enforcing gun laws that we have. My question is, what are your thoughts on looking very close at the parents, family and friends who know these shooters? Yeah, that was that was the mass shooting in Buffalo. I mean, it, it's a pretty sad mm-hmm. state of affairs where you have to specify which mass shooting you're talking about. And they're occurring in back to back weeks. Actually, there was a you know, there was another incident at a church in California, I think, in the interim. So uh, I'm willing to look at anything that keeps children from being killed while they're simply doing what we make them to do, which is make them do, which is get an education. And, you know, mass shootings are horrific regardless of where they occur. But the systematic killing of children shows a level of depravity that is subhuman. Uh, The answer to his question, parents have been charged. Uh, There was a shooting uh, maybe it was in Pennsylvania. It was a school shooting uh, several months ago. The parents uh, were charged. They had either actual or constructive knowledge that their son was going to do something. And uh, the most charitable view of what they did was nothing. The more accurate view of what they did is they essentially aided and abetted it. I am more than fine with imposing a duty on others to alert law enforcement when they perceive or have knowledge of a threat. I mean, they're already mandatory reporters in other realms of life. Teachers and others have a mandatory reporting requirement when it comes to abuse. So, yeah, I'm fine with having mandatory reporting requirements so people don't just, you know, stick their head in the sand and say, oh, well, they're having a bad day. 
course, when you alert someone, the, someone has to do something about it. And there are examples of people doing the right thing and calling and saying, I'm worried about this fact pattern. I'm worried about this person and law enforcement doesn't do anything about it. So mm-hmm. there's nothing I am not willing to explore to keep children from being slaughtered. There's nothing. And, and you know, not to go back to the good old days, but I, I was a gun prosecutor. Um, that was you know, before I was a homicide prosecutor, but those are two different things. The goal of a gun prosecutor is to keep the guns out of the hands of people that are not lawfully entitled to have them. or not going to use them responsibly before they do something. It, it, the, you know, after the murder is too late for the murder victim. So the goal is to get the guns out of the hands of people who will not use them responsibly ahead of time to stop the shootings before they occur. And I am open to just about any idea that would accomplish that and that would work. And what I'm not interested in is using horrifying, horrific tragedies to accomplish any other agenda on the left or the right that is not causally and logically related to the desired outcome. And my Mm -hmm. desired outcome is no more dead children. Well, thank you, Trey. And thank you, Carl, for that question. As hard as it is, our next question is from Jim in South Carolina. He writes, I'm curious your thoughts on freedom versus safety. It feels like the country is moving more and more towards the desire to be safe instead of free. What do you think is driving that? Well, in fairness to Jim, I think my guess is he asked this question before what happened in Texas. He did. Yes, sir. That was a good point to share. No, I mean, I, I'm sure he feels exactly the same way every one of us feels, every one of good conscience. So I'm going to answer it the same way I would have answered it had there not been yet another elementary school mass murder in this country. Mm. To be honest with you, Jim, I'm I'm in I'm in the safety group. Um, I don't think any of our freedoms matter. Um, In fact, I know they don't matter when we're dead. So keeping people alive, keeping people from being assaulted, keeping people from being hurt is where my bias lies. And I love the fact that we live in a free country, but with every one of our freedoms comes a corresponding responsibility. Yep. We have the right to free speech, but we have a responsibility not to lie. We have the freedom to petition the government, but we have a responsibility not to show up at judges and justices' houses and try to intimidate them or their families. Mm. So, look, I I am so happy that we live in this country. We won the lottery if we were born in or got to this country. It it Mm. is a country known for freedom, but your freedom is wholly irrelevant if you are dead. So, Yeah, I place a really high priority on safety. I think it is the number one function of government is public safety. Number one. Number one government program that I get behind is people not killing other people, not hurting other people, not robbing other people. Now, sometimes what is claimed to be a desire to keep us safe is a ruse for more control. And I know that I don't want the police or the government going through my mail or my email or my cell phones for no reason. I don't want that. But I also don't have anything in my mail or email or cell phones that is going to portend a crime. So I love that we're free. I, I, I period. There's no, if there's no, but there's no, however, I love the fact that we are a free people. 
but I also know what fear does to people. And I know that dead people don't have any freedoms. They don't have any rights. So I am all for logical, reason, fair, and transparent ways to keep us safe. Our next question is from Kelly in Tennessee. She writes, why do we have to wait days or weeks to learn the results of the midterm elections this year? What happened to knowing the night of? Do you think we'll ever get back to that? Or is this the new version here to stay? Uh, well, Kelly from the great state of Tennessee, um, I'm going to give you a really, really, I hope, I hope a, an honest and thoughtful answer, which is mm -hmm. I have absolutely no idea. I honestly do not. I have no idea what takes so long. I know the states get to set the rules for their elections. There, there was a bill pending, which would have, in essence, federalized elections. And every Republican I heard express an opinion was opposed to that bill. Um, and I was opposed to that bill. I don't want a federalization of our elections. But what you have now is the states get to do it 50 different ways. Now, you can't change the qualifications for federal office. I mean, those are set in the Constitution. You can't change that. But states do get to set the rules. So if you have a state that allows a vote to count, if it was postmarked by Election Day, postmarked, then God only knows when that ballot's going to get there. So, and we obviously, I mean, Everyone wants to give those serving overseas a chance to get their ballots, you know, filled out, completed, sent in. Um, I, I don't know the answer. I, I know this. It is not fair to ask people to wait a week or longer so they know the election results. There are still we are beyond a week out and there are still races that are too close to call. Not because of a recount. We haven't even gotten to the recounts yet because all the ballots have not been processed. So when will it change? When the people of Arizona say we can do better, when the people of Nevada say we can do better, when the people of California say we can do better. And I'm not just picking on those three states. I mean, I got friends in every one of those states. But Florida is a big state. And we know that night. We know early that night. So it, it is stunning to me how quickly some states can get it done and how long it takes others. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my thought is, yeah, I, I think it's really bad for a political party uh, to kind of adopt the notion that we want as few people as possible to vote. I, I just think, I mean, you must not have any confidence in your ideas if you want as few people as possible to vote. Mm -hmm. But there are few things in the world that are more predictable than Election Day. I mean, it's like saying, oh, oh, Christmas snuck up on me. How can it sneak up on you? It's the same day every single year. How can Election Day sneak up on you? So if you want to let people early vote, if you want to let people, you know, drop off their ballots and not wait in line, I mean, I, I'm all of that is great. It's all great. But why you can't get it done when you know, I mean, we know two years from now when the general election is going to be. It's not like they're going to decide it like sometime in 2024. We know right now. So why we and, and look, this gets a little bit not to 
uh, go too far down this rabbit hole. But this whole notion of accountability to others, yeah, I mean, we're 50 different laboratories, but when one of the laboratories is like causing the other 49 to have to do something that's not cool, I mean, you ought to fix it. So the whole country should not be waiting on a handful of states to process their ballots. You need to figure out a way to let everyone who wants to vote, vote, and still let us know in less than a week after the election what the results were. That is not asking too much. Our last question is from Deb, and she writes, I saw you on Fox and Friends. How did you decide to write this book? Well, thank you for watching Fox and Friends. Um, mm-hmm. That's a little early for me. So um, <laughs> honestly, I have no idea what I said. Uh, and I hope I wasn't in my pajamas. That, that, that's uh, if it's before noon, I make no promises. <laughs> uh, so this book is coming out in January. Um, just to take you on a quick little uh, trip down memory lane, Tim Scott and I wrote a book uh, together titled Unified about the joy and the power of pursuing unlikely friendships. And then Tim, speaking of friends, persuaded me to write a book on persuasion, how to use questions to make your case and move people and win, you know, not an argument in that sense of the word where people are really arguing, but how to win the argument in a legal sense of the word, how to how to win your case. And then, honestly, I thought I was done writing nonfiction books. I mean, I love to write. I'd rather write than anything in the world. But I really thought that I would be writing a crime drama, which is, you know, kind of what I had my mind on. And then I had a chance meeting uh, with a lady that I I don't think I'd ever seen her before, but um, in the parking lot of a grocery store. And it led me to write this book. Uh, start, stay, or leave. Literally, a, a lady walked up to me and asked me if I was still the prosecutor, and I said no. And she said, you know, we thought you were good at that job. Uh, when did you leave? And I didn't want to embarrass her, uh, so I just said a little while ago. I mean, in reality, it had been 10 years. I, I left that job 10 years ago. And then she said, well, what'd you do next? And I found myself not wanting to talk about politics at all. And it's not that, you know, not that I wasn't proud to be in Congress, but it's just so divisive now. I didn't want to tell her that I went to Congress. So I just said, well, I went to work in another branch of government and I was walking away. We said goodbye. And then she yelled one more thing. She said, well, we thought you were fair. And so I got back in the truck with my wife and said, you know, that's the only thing I really want people to say about me when I'm gone. That's it be great if they said he was funny and fair, but, you know, about 80 percent of the people don't think I'm funny. So let me just settle on fair. If people will say I'm fair, then that has been a life well lived. So I sat in my truck and reflected on the different decisions that we make in life and how those decisions influence what we do and who we do it with and whether we'll be remembered at all and by whom and in what way. And the fact that I was sitting in the truck with Terry was the result of a decision made in 1982. Going to law school was a decision. Becoming a prosecutor, running for office, this leaving office. I mean, life is about decisions. So how do we make the best decisions for life? 
how do we balance logic with emotion? Because you can't just walk around like a computer, but by the same time, token, you can't just sit there and make every decision in life based on how you feel. How do we reconcile what we love with what we're good at? I mean, we may love something, but we're just not good at it. Does that mean we should still do it? To mean we should do it as a hobby, but not as a way of life? How do we tame fear? I mean, a lot of people live in fear. How do we turn fear into an ally named caution? Who do we decide to take advice and counsel from in life? So it's a book to empower people to make the very best decisions for their lives, to picture what they want a friend or, in my case, a stranger to say about them and make sure that all the decisions we make get us closer to what what that picture is, what we want to see and hear. So it's titled Start, Stay, or Leave, The Art of Decision-Making. It comes out in January. It's available for pre-order now. It took me about a year and a half to write it. I think it's going to make you laugh. Uh, it may in spots, um, particularly talking about uh, some things from the courtroom that may make you cry. But it is definitely going to make you think and hopefully put you on the way to making the very, very best decisions for your own life. Well, we're excited to read it, Trey. Thank you for sharing about it. If you'd like to hear the full episode of the questions featured, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. I hope the new year brings you every health and happiness. Take care. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.